Hello. Hey, John. How are you? Hi there, Dan Benjamin. How's everything going? Oh, things are going super swell. Good. Went to the dump yesterday. Oh, the dump. What's what's that for? Why? I'm cleaning up the backyard. I had a uh, I had a hot tub uh, in the backyard for a long time, and I I finally um, decided that it was it was bumming me out being back there. So we sawzalled it up into pieces and borrowed the neighbor's trailer. And then I realized that someone had misplaced my trailer hitch. So I had to go to the hardware or the, um, like someone like like you or someone else was out using it. Well, I made the mistake at one point of buying a bike rack at (laughs) U-Haul and I put it in place of the trailer hitch and then the trailer hitch pretty sure went in the back of the truck. And then at some point truck got cleaned out because of some other thing, something or another trailer hitch probably went on the porch at that point. And then it's time to clean the porch. Trailer hitch probably went in the barn. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen pictures of the inside of your house and I've seen a couple from the outside. It doesn't look like there is a barn. I mean, it doesn't, I'm not, I don't doubt you. I'm just saying like, yeah. where is all this stuff hidden? Well, it's, there's a, there, one of the reasons that I, that I liked the house in the first place was that it had a fairly large piece of property. You know, when I was looking for houses back when, I mean, the way that I bought my house was that I was sitting around my mom's house and it occurred to me suddenly that I was of an age where it was appropriate to own my own house and I had money enough that I could make a down payment on a house, but it had never really like gone into my head the idea that I actually could own my own house. It sure. just had never occurred to me. And right. partly it was because I was never in a long-term relationship that I gave any, that I gave much hope to surviving. And I think that a relationship maybe is one of the things that propels you into thinking in those terms, like what's next? Oh, we should buy a house. But for me, it was always like, what's next? I don't know. Tacos. (laughs) Like I never even thought about buying a car I just didn't have any I didn't have any uh, of those sort of what's next thoughts but suddenly I did and then I was like I'll buy I'll buy a house what the heck yeah and I looked around the neighborhood where my mom lived and houses even then were too expensive so I started looking farther afield and I started to find places I could afford but they were on tiny little narrow lots and they had junk cars in the alley and then I you know I expanded my search as you do this is this is what happens anyway I found this house and it sat on a large piece of property it had a barn it had a derelict swimming pool <laughs> is that and still it was there a, the swimming this, pool yeah the derelict swimming pool is still there is it empty it is yeah does so it fill with rain no no, it's. I'm lucky that it is. We're, we uh, we have sandy soil here in this part of town, 
And um, so it rains and rains and rains, and the and the soil just absorbs it. the The water just goes down back back to nature, mm. takes everything with it. So the the pool never never even has any standing water in it. That's good because then you get mosquitoes. Yep. Yep. Oh, and it, for my mosquitoes, I keep buckets of rocks sitting around, rocks that I've pulled out of the garden. I put them in buckets and then I don't, then the buckets fill with rainwater and then the mosquitoes grow in the, in the rock buckets. That's my mosquito breeding plant. That seems like a mosquito lure though. Well. Like if you didn't have the buckets and maybe the mosquitoes wouldn't be coming there to breed at all. That's right. That's exactly right. It's but, a mistake, Dan. It's not a, okay. it's not a, it's I, not because like a project. I, I got excited for a second because I thought you had maybe had something figured out, but I feel like you're just giving them a place to, to breed that wouldn't normally be there. It's not like you're saying breed here in the rock buckets instead of over here, no. you're just giving them something like here, please breed here. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really please, but, but yeah, I'm saying in, in addition to having these buckets of rocks around that I that I have a plan for. I mm-hmm. have enough of a plan for that I haven't dumped them out, but not enough of a plan for them that I have done it. Done so the was, plan. Was the, or, or, so originally the buckets of rocks were going to be for something else until you realized oh, mosquitoes are are breeding in here. No, there's no until. They <laughs> are, they're meant for something else and still are meant for something still else. Still are meant, okay. And when I, when I realized that mosquitoes were breeding in them, I would walk past them sometimes and put my boot on one side of the bucket and tip it over so that the water drained out a little. Uh-huh. No, it's a bad it's a bad deal all around. I mean, it's not like the house is swarming with mosquitoes, so it's not I, I haven't created an a plague or anything, but but I'm also conscious that there's a little bit of water in these buckets and right. the mosquitoes We'll, we'll be happy there. Mm-hmm. No, sometimes I take one of the buckets over in front of my neighbor's yard and I dump it in the potholes that form in his driveway. Sometimes I... As a favor or is that a, is that yeah, a nice a thing to do? Yeah. I mean, yeah. he for whatever reason, his yard, his driveway gets worn and potholes form in the dirt. And... um you know he's sort of more inclined to just let it let it ride mm-hmm. even than i am and i have these many 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 paint buckets full of rocks so and he's not aware of the paint buckets of rocks they're back in my in my uh, secret rock area right sure but i take him out there and i dump him in the hole in his in his driveway sometimes just to like just to keep the whole project swimming along but of course as i say it's sandy soil so eventually eventually i think you just pour rocks in that in his hole for eternity the rocks will just go down through the sand and then eventually back out to the ocean where they spawn (laughs) right every year (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah so i have all this stuff in the trailer hitch the trailer hitch got lost somewhere on the property. And the thing about a trailer hitch is that it looks precisely like both any and every tool. Mm-hmm. And also it looks exactly like any and every piece of junk, scrap junk. 
because it's just a piece it's just a piece of rusty metal you know a piece of r- metal that is painted black that has rust where the paint has flaked off right that that looks like everything so if you're standing in a barn even one that is clean where things are organized on the shelves which my barn increasingly is and you look around and you're trying to do a scan like where is the trailer hitch where is the trailer hitch and you're looking and it's like oh well that's where i keep the old planes like the wood crafting planes which right. look like trailer hitches <laughs> and this over here is where i keep the you know the pipe wrenches which sort of are the same color as trailer hitch and here's where the you know what i mean like looking around i cannot tell I cannot pick out the trailer hitch. So trailer hitches are not expensive. I went to the auto parts store. I bought a new trailer hitch. I had a great time at the auto parts store. It's always fun. Which is there a favorite that you have? Well, there are great ones. There was one that used to be run by two brothers. Uh, that was right in the center of Capitol Hill. Two hippie brothers. One of them really skinny who looked exactly like uh, freewheel and Franklin. And then the other one was big and stout who looked exactly like fat Freddy freewheel and Franklin and fat Freddy are two of the fabulous furry freak brothers. Dan, I understand from your silence that you're not, not I'm waiting to hear what that means. You're not getting that, that no, cultural reference. No, no. And then the, I know the, the guys in the banana splits, but I feel like this is something different. This is actually not that far off. Okay. Because that's uh, third, who I was imagining when you were when you were naming them. Yeah, that's about right. It's same, you know, same era, same <laughs> overall concept. And then the third freak brother's name was Phineas. Of course. And uh, Phineas does not look like. I mean, you could see where Fat Freddy and Freewheel and Franklin were brothers. Sure. But Phineas does not look even anything like the other two. But you know, that's that's about the. That's about the the freak family, not any not anything to worry about. The the fabulous furry freak brothers was a big influence on me as a teen. It's it's um it's what you call an alternative comic, oh. alt alt comic. And okay. I get a lot of uh, I got a, I get a lot of flack from my nerd brethren about not having read. Marvel comics mm-hmm. as a kid. Mm-hmm. I did not read Marvel comics, but I was, I completely consumed comics at a, at a crazy pace. It's just that they were alternative comics, um, in the form of R. crumb and obviously mad magazine and national lampoon and the freak brothers and fat Freddy's cat also one of the great characters. I didn't read Omaha, the, um, the magic, what was Omaha? A rabbit? A cat. I didn't read Omaha, the cat, but I did read, yeah, you know, little Annie Sprinkle, all the stuff that I shouldn't have been reading, basically. It, mm. was, all gr- it was all grown-up stuff. It was comics that had boobies in it. Yeah, I read the National Lampoon's uh, magazine as well. Yeah, and that stuff was I don't know too. How, why my mom let me subscribe to that thing? Hmm. I think she just didn't know what it was. Uh-huh. 
but like that's you how know, I got away with it. She wrote a check out for it, probably for it's probably like nine dollars for the year or something. Uh huh. And it was it was amazing. I mean, I think my I think my mom probably knew overall what it was. My mom was not afraid of of uh, me seeing boobs. That right. was not. She wasn't worried about that. She almost wanted you to. Well, I don't know, but. But she wasn't. She she understood that I was sophisticated, and she felt like I could be participating in in the culture that was more adult than right. than kid. But you know, National Lampoon was college humor, and a lot of it was gross out, and a lot of it was. I don't know. Pretty sophisticated for a for a ten and twelve year old, and it it had a shaping effect. And you know, the Freak Brothers were all about drugs and um, thwarting the cops. <laughs> uh, they were like the goofy. They were like the Three Stooges of of pot smoking. Oh, uh, Trots and Bonnie. That was a good one from National Lampoon. That was a good comic. So, but they were super influential and I have no idea how I, I mean, I, I would buy these comics at like head shops. I would find them, you know, four for a dollar in the, because they were sixties and seventies hippie comics. And by the time I was going in, you know, sneaking into pawn shops and head shops in the early eighties, these things were all kind of over in a in a shoebox, like, like on sale, fire sale stuff. Right. Cause nobody was into it then. And so I was able to, I was able to acquire them and sometimes, you know, get them four at a time by, um, because it was old. And I, I don't know why, I don't know why I was so interested in that culture. I remember I went into one of these places and they had a blow up punching bag of, Richard Nixon. Of course they did. <laughs> and it was it was a punching bag, but it was meant to sit on the floor. And instead of punching it, as you walked through the house, this thing was supposed to be just kind of sitting there and you were supposed to walk past it and kick it. It was weighted on the bottom. It had it looked like Richard Nixon standing in a suit. And you would just kick this thing. It was probably two feet tall and it would you know, it would flop over right. and it would fly through the air. And it was called Kick Tricky Dick. Oh, I love that. And I saw this thing at one of these pawn shops. And again, it was like 1981. Nobody cares about Richard Nixon anymore. So it was on sale. It was like 99 cents. And I was like, I have to have this. So, you know, a little, this blow up Richard Nixon was in my bedroom as a kid, my mom didn't understand what I had it for either. And I'm not hundred percent sure that I did. Cause I didn't actually, I mean, we were opposed to Nixon obviously, but right. I didn't know. I didn't, I wasn't mad at him. I didn't want to kick him. <laughs> he just kind of sat there <laughs> surveying the scene. Right. Uh, so then I put the trailer hitch in the back of the, in the, the hitch of the truck and I hooked up the neighbor's, um, trailer which was now filled with an entire hot tub, which is that fills up a trailer. I don't know if you've ever cut up a hot hot tub with a sawzall. I haven't, but it fills a 
fill, it fills the trailer right up. And then my friend Peter and I went to the dump and see, they've built a new dump. Kind of feel like this is going in an, like an Alice's restaurant direction. Yeah. Well, you can get anything you want, Dan. (laughs) So the old dump was built like a dump should be built, which is to say that you drive your car up to a, to a rope basically. And there are cars on either side of you backed up against this rope. And then there's a pit and in the pit is garbage. And then down in the pit, there are bulldozers and all day long, they're driving around churning this garbage and pushing it around until right. it's some kind of garbage mush. And then they bulldoze it into trucks and the trucks drive the garbage away to a, to a, a miracle land where it turns to rainbows. Yes. We don't want to know what happens. And in Seattle, there were a few dumps and they were enclosed buildings, but big, huge buildings. And they had these pits in them you drive in and dump smelled terrible of course and as the years went by i think they installed a, a like misters that would like mist the dump with Ugh. misty water to keep the kind of the steam off of it or keep the particles down you'd drive in and you'd be and it's you'd have to start holding your breath as soon as you got anywhere close to the dump and you're in there and you're throwing your stuff and it just smells like garbage awful yeah <clears throat> And then you get out of there. Well, they have since rebuilt all the Seattle dumps. They're completely new and a completely new concept because Seattle is very, very, very far out in front in terms of a citywide recycling program. We've been doing it for decades. We know what we're doing. We have three different kinds of waste uh, bins in all of our homes and one of them is recycling and we all know all the things that go in recycling it's not confusing to us and the recycling bin is the biggest bin in any yeah, place ours is like that too the recycle like yeah. they like as much as you want to recycle we'll give you a giant bin you want a second bin we'll give you a second bin but the trash can is like minuscule like trash can is minuscule. Yeah, don't they don't want you to throw anything away. They want you to recycle everything. But here we also have food waste and natural waste garbage. In our houses we have these these food waste things. And we use special garbage bags which are biodegradable. And into the food waste goes and Obviously, any food, your coffee grounds, your eggshells, but also any kind of pizza box or, right. uh, you know, and all of the all of the stuff that we're making now, food containers, because Seattle decided a few years ago that if you were a takeout restaurant, your food containers and all your takeout stuff had to be biodegradable. Sure. So we put all that in the food stuff. Right, and then that goes to a separate place where it gets turned into maize. My people call it maize. I don't know what the I don't know what it gets turned into. It gets turned into fertilizer. It gets turned into na- na- back into nature. Yeah. So you go to the dump now, and the dump doesn't smell really because it doesn't have anything in it 
that's rotting. You drive in and over here is where you put the wood and over here is where you throw your old furniture and over here is where you put metal and here's and 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 those are in their own way kind of going to get recycled into something. And so the amount of actual garbage like plastic bags and just shitty crap i don't know what it is it's a, it's 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 a fairly limited amount of stuff now but what they did was they did away with the pit mm. so you don't drive up to a hole and throw your garbage in the hole and there aren't bulldozers down in the hole you drive into this enormous hall mm-hmm. and there's a guy standing there and he's like what do you got and like i got a bunch of hot tub he's like oh okay Go around the corner here. There's going to be another guy. That guy's probably going to tell you to go somewhere like maybe slot number nine. I was like, okay, got it. So I went around the corner. There was another guy over there. <laughs> and no, you know, like a football field away. That guy said, yeah, why don't you go up there and get into slot number. Hang on. And he called on his radio. <laughs> yelled at somebody. And they said, slot number nine. And I was like, the first guy was right. And you drive around the corner and you're in this huge cement hall and the bulldozers are just racing around (laughs) and the city dump trucks are just racing around. It's like a, it's like Frogger (laughs) and I'm standing there with my truck, which normally is like pretty big truck and I've got a trailer full of hot tubs. So I've, I'm, I feel pretty confident on the roads as being one of the bigger items. But now I'm in this room full of garbage trucks and giant front end loaders. And this is their territory, right? So they're moving around. They're, they're spinning these trucks around like it's a ballet. And I'm like, slot number nine, you say? And the guy's like, yeah, all the way down at the end, slot number nine. I'm like, okay, fuck. So I start to drive and it's garbage trucks and and front end loaners and they're the big ones right there they're like the ones that you use at a at a mine and they're throwing couches around and spinning around in circles and i get over there and back up and there's no there's no pit you just dump your garbage like slot number nine is nothing it's just a number nine on the wall which you aim for (laughs) and you just dump your stuff on the ground really and then as soon as you get out of there some bulldozer comes at 30 miles an hour and hits this stuff and and at one point as i'm dumping this out <laughs> one of these giant uh loaders goes by and you know this is a thing where the operator has to climb up like basically a full story of a house just to get into the cab mm-hmm. it's enormous like the tires are taller than i am this guy goes by and he's I mean, we're indoors and he's going 25 miles an hour and he's chasing a soccer ball, which he keeps hitting with the, with the (laughs) bucket of his thing and the ball is bouncing and he's like chasing it across this enormous concrete field. I'm like, this is the greatest job in the world for a, for a guy driving a dozer. But I'm scared. This guy's playing soccer with it. Yeah. That's bizarre. Dumping this hot tub out of here. Peter and I are just like, let's get this going. And uh, 
and it was it was surprising how much we both wanted there to be a pit like because garbage goes in a hole that's what right. you do it, it feels like you're not really seeing it through to completion if you just put it on a on a concrete floor yeah I mean, from time immemorial, people have taken their garbage out to the cliff and thrown it off the cliff. Right. No, you want to you watch it go down and you want to see it land somewhere deep, far below. And it's in the hole and then it's safe in the hole. And here, <laughs> safe. Just throw, I'm just throwing it out, <laughs> throwing it on the ground. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I get back in the, in the cab of the truck and because we're doing the thing where like, I, I'll drive forward a foot and then slam on the brakes so that the stuff. Oh, because the because my neighbor's trailer is actually a dumper. What do you like mean a, a dumper? It has a hydraulic and oh, and it, it can tip and a, oh. tip and dump. I didn't even realize it. It was the guy at the when we drove into the dump. He was like, "Where are you going?" And I said, "Well, we got this hot tub." And he said, "Oh, okay, you got a dumper." And I said, "I don't think so. I don't know what you mean, but no, I don't think I have a dumper." He was like, no, your trailer, it dumps. And I said, no. He said, yeah, get out. Let me show you. And we walk back and, and we stand and look at it. And he's like, yeah, it's got to be around here somewhere. And he like, op- opens a little box that's on the front of it. And he's like, look in there. See, there's a. And and I sure enough, I pull out this little controller that has an up and down button. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And he's like, no, it's great. <laughs> and so we had this this fun moment where he was showing me how to use my trailer and he was like, so you got to go over to slot number nine. That's where, you know, and I think that's why I was over there because I had a dumper. So I was over with the big, with the big Right, shots. right, right. That makes sense. If I had had just a station wagon, I would have been up here with people dropping Christmas trees off. But yeah. I was like, you know, back where it was assumed that if you were driving a truck, you could also play soccer with it. So anyway, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm rattling the truck to get the stuff up at the top of the trailer to fall out and the guy with the big, the big soccer playing loader parks and he walks over to me and he says, Hey, look, I know when you leave, you're probably going to want to go down that ramp. And I said, you're right. That's where I was. That's where I was headed. And he said, don't go down the ramp. It looks like you're supposed to go down there, but that's not that's not where you go because that's where the garbage trucks go. And if you get down there, you're going to get stuck. You're going to have to back all the way out with this trailer. And I was like, shit, I do not want to be the guy in the old truck trying to back a trailer up a ramp while ballet dancing garbage trucks pile up behind me and all these guys watch, right? This is the ultimate thing you don't want. These guys who drive trucks all day watching you try to back a trailer up a ramp. Can you imagine a worse thing? <laughs> I would, I think I would get out and I would hand them the keys and I would say, you keep the truck and I would walk home right. rather. I mean, cause you know, I'm pretty good at backing a trailer up, but not in front of like 30 garbage men. He says, no, there's a hidden exit. It's over here behind this wall. And I, looked and there did not appear to be an exit it appeared to be a wall but then i could see oh no in fact the road does go behind the wall it's just the wall and the further wall are the same color they look it doesn't look like they're two walls and i was like wow thank you so much for getting out 
of your truck and coming over and telling me that. That would have been a big thing. Right. He was like, well, I could tell that this was maybe all new to you. Uh, just based on your performance of driving up here and looking confused. <laughs> so I figured, you know, I'd save us all a bunch of time. And I was like, you know, that's amazing. You're right. This new dump is really confusing. And then he w- then he got this look on his face. and He was like, I know. I missed the pit. Ah. I said, you missed the pit. That's what I was thinking. And he said, ah, oh, the pit was great. This is insane. He said, somebody's going to get killed up here. I'm going to, I'm going to run somebody over in my truck while they're trying to figure out how to get between these garbage trucks. And I was like, that's how I felt. He's like, no, this is up here. This should just be, this should, well, first of all, there should still be a pit. The pit was fine. I was down there with my, with my dozer. You were up there throwing stuff off a ledge. It was, it was how nature intended. Mm Mm-hmm. But now we're just screwing around in here together. It's not, there's nothing right about it. Although chasing the soccer ball was pretty cool. You couldn't have done that in the, in the pit. So finally got out of there and, uh, and it was a lesson to us all. It really was. It was a lesson in garbage dump construction. A lesson that maybe you didn't really want. Well, no, it's it's important to know those things, right? Because now the new garbage station, which we we call the transfer station. We don't call it the garbage dump. We call it the transfer station because, of course, we're not dumping anything, Dan. We're just transferring it. Right. We're transferring it into trains, into trucks. The trucks go into trains. The trains go into the middle distance. I think they go to Oregon. Really? And then way out in eastern Oregon where there's nothing – except for Bend, Oregon, and Pendleton, Oregon, and Madras, Oregon. But other than those places, there's really not very much in eastern Oregon. And there, I think there's a giant, giant garbage dump out there that, that no one talks about that Oregon has because nobody knows what to do with their garbage and they will pay you a lot of money if you take their garbage. I think that's where all the garbage goes. See, they have these giant landfills in Broward County, Florida, that I remember them being there ever since I was a a kid living down there. And you would, I I assume people could dump stuff into them, but, you know, these were these huge, and, you know, Florida's flat. There's not even, there's no hills, there's nothing. So you'd be driving along the interstate and you'd see this giant hill slash mountain but it's covered <laughs> it's green it's grass it's covered with grass of some kind right or or some kind of green vegetation covering it but it stinks and you can smell it a mile away yeah and it's got all these little tubes these little pipes and tubes and stuff poking out of it and sticking out of it which I'm assuming are to let the gas that's forming from the decay that's happening inside of it belch out. Yep. And they used to, you know, sometimes you'll see it'll have some kind of, you know, dump truck or front end loader or something driving around on top of it. But 
when I went down to Florida a few weeks ago to visit, there's like three or four of them now. And they're huge. They're, the one that I remembered from my childhood is, is nothing like the ones they have there now. And we passed multiple ones. And I mean, you know, because I think in Florida you can't dig. Because if you dig no, down you more dig. than three or four feet, it's, there's water there. It's sand, yeah, and then the sand leads to water. So there's no, there are no pits in South Florida whatsoever. And they just have these giant, giant mountains of, I guess, different kinds of trash in there. And I was just thinking, because, you know, with this hurricane bearing down, uh, like what happens, like, do the, what if those things like explode, just explode in the storm? Wow, you think they might explode? I think they could explode. Well, you know, these are the landfills that um, that Supertrain is going to digest. Oh, yes. Right? This is how Supertrain is going to save the world and also power itself and become the, you know, the Are there people force, listening force who, who, who maybe haven't heard Roderick on the line and don't know what Supertrain is? There may be people who do not know what Supertrain is who are listening to Roadwork who have never heard Roderick on the line. In fact, I'm almost certain there are and and perhaps even a multitude um, but super train is very complicated to explain. Suffice to say that it is a giant train with an enormous claw that goes around and, uh, and goes to landfills, which have been covered and covered with grass and turned into unlikely parks. Right. Um, in Anchorage, the landfill got turned into an extension of the airport cause they used to dump the <laughs> trash out by the airport and then they just covered it over with dirt and and now they park airplanes on it. But so Supertrain will go there because those landfills are full of old washing machines and catalytic converters that are full of platinum and all that partly digested petroleum product crapola from 60 years of America dumping its crapola. And Supertrain is going to gobble that up and recycle it and turn it into fuel and gold and food and it's not at all like the stupid snow piercer train because it's not going to be a tortured allegory at i don't know all. i don't know what the, the snow what was that snow piercer snow piercer was a movie about a train that uh sped across a post-apocalypse and it was powered mysteriously and it was an allegory for the class system. Oh, okay. Because at the back of the train uh, were people who were poor and grubby. Okay. And slaving away. And then as you moved forward in the train, each, each successive car, you got closer and closer to a realm where people were just luxuriating in gross overconsumption. And it was like, it it worked pretty well, I guess, as a poem, but as a movie, I found it really excruciating, particularly since it came out post-Super Train um, doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were like, look, they made a movie about Super Train. And I was like, no, they did not. That is some other thing. <laughs> you were in, you're like insulted by that, really. I was. I was like, no, there's not going to be any people in the back of Super Train eating bugs and people in the front of Super Train just sitting around on ecstasy all day. Does Super That's Train need someone to, to 
drive it or is it autonomous? Oh, oh no, no, no. Once once we get to a place where Supertrain has to do the work of Supertrain, you need to either be on the train or off the train, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. And if you're on the train, well, I mean, you know, all animals are equal. Some animals are more equal than others, which includes me. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you know, it's going to be kind of a kind of a utopia of people that have the had the presence of mind to keep a small bag packed and be ready to get on super train. Anyway, there are plenty of these dumps around the country enough to enough to support an entire super train ecosystem in the event, right? In the event that we need to that the elect need to get on board the train. I don't know if we'll go down to Florida because all of the dumps down there will be underwater. There will need right. to be a superboat. Right. And there is a plan for a superboat <laughs> because superboat is going to be out harvesting all the giant islands of plastic. That Did you read the other day there was an article that said that fish, it turns out fish like eating plastic? No, I didn't know that. I, I was reading something that said that there is – plastic particles in 95% of the tap water in America. But I haven't heard that fish like it. Yeah. See, super train's going to fix all this, but the fish apparently or super boat. You mean a super boat? I haven't heard super boat mentioned before. Super boat. Has it something you've talked about that I could research? Well, I think super boat is more, um, is more nascent and also more of a implied solution because part of the part of the doctrine of super train is that we are, we're not just harvesting this stuff to stay alive, but we're harvest harvesting it because this is where the great wealth has been deposited. You know how it is when you go to a, I don't know how, how much gold mining you've done, Dan, but not, when you go, not as much as you might think. When you go down and you do a kind of, uh, when you do mining, you end up with tailings, and tailings are the rock and sand and and shit that came out the back end of your mining operation. And there's always stuff in the tailings. There's always gold and silver and copper and all kinds of metals and other things in your tailings that you just didn't have the technology or you didn't want to spend the extra money to break that, break those tailings down a further two steps to extract everything that's in them. And the first pass in gold mining, particularly back in the old days when you were, you know, using either giant, steam powered machines or you were sitting there with your with your gold pan the first pass you're just trying to get the the gold that's just kind of floating on top right, right i mean right. you just want to get the easy stuff you don't want to sit there all day chipping away trying to get some little particles you're just like give me the big nugs and then there's all these tailings behind well and then the tailings sit out there for years nobody thinks about them because that looks like where the that's already been mined, right? Right. If you fly over Dawson City uh, in the Yukon Territories and you go up those rivers on either side, you'll see enormous, enormous tailings. Um, 
and they basically like they look like what do they look like yeah they look like berms like snail trails because the after the after the miners of 1898 got done with their gold pans or whatever they they came through with these things called dredges gold dredges and if you look up a gold dredge it's this astonishing piece of 19th century technology it's a it's basically a barge okay i'm looking at a picture of this thing i've seen it, it looks like the same kind of thing that again back to back to florida they used to have one of these sitting out uh you know a quarter of a mile away from the beach and it was dredging up sand and bringing the sand back up because of the beach erosion to prevent the beach erosion from happening. It yeah, looked a lot that, like this. That is, that's the concept, right? And this thing can float in very small amount of water. So they would send it up these rivers and they're, you know, they're not like super big rivers, but the, they would channel the river so that it would, create enough water underneath a dredge that the dredge could float. And then the dredge would just slowly make its way and it would be churning the riverbed in front of it into these big buckets. And it takes all the, the gravel and everything out of the river, takes it all the way up to the top of this dredge in these buckets. And then down through the center of the dredge, there are conveyor belts and shakers and screens and like tons and tons. The entire thing is full of machinery. It's not, it's not like it has cabins in it or anything. It's just all full of like this Rube Goldberg machine where the, where the gravel and shit is all crushed up and sent down. And in the middle somewhere, there's this, you know, there's a whole process of extracting the precious metals from the gravel, from the, you know, this crap rock. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of it is done through just the fact that gold weighs more than normal rock. So the gold is going to behave differently as it gets crumbled through, but also gold is attracted to mercury Hmm. and mercury, if you put mercury in there somehow, you, you can get it all kind of out. And so it doesn't like poison the, Oh, it totally poisons. Okay. And I don't know, there's something involving arsenic, maybe even I, there's a, it's just, it's this whole science of getting the rock, getting the gold out of the rock. Anyway, if you, if you, if you look up the tailings of Dawson city, I'm sure that there will be pictures all up all these rivers, there are these just enormous piles, even manicured piles of rock where there once were fresh flowing Canadian burbling mountain streams where the dredges have come. Well, then later when the technology gets better, all of a sudden these tailings look like easy pickings because now you don't have to go tear up the river bottom. All you have to do is go through this groomed and manicured mm. tailings pile and just process it again. And there's all this other stuff that they left behind. And that's another thing that, 
you know, another way of describing what's going to happen with super train. Cause we're going to go through, we're going to get everything that we can, but there's like, there's this perpetual kind of, or at least long-term wealth to be had just reprocessing the stuff that right now we think is garbage too hard to get the oil back out of the plastic bags. So we leave it behind. But when oil is really scarce, it's just waiting there for us. And Superboat is the same. It's just pulling all the garbage out of the oceans. But it turns out, I guess, that fish, when they smell plastic in the mm-hmm. ocean, it smells the same to them as, like, krill. Interesting. So it's and not so, that they like eating the plastic. They get confused. They think it's something different. Exactly. They It smells right to them, and so then they eat it. And then the fish are full of plastic, and then we eat the fish. So we're eating the plastic, which I guess is our just desserts. But, you know, you want it to be – you want there to be one safe thing to eat. And increasingly it seems like there's not. Not even that. Well, before, you know, we need, we need to do a, a sponsor thank you here. But before we do it, um, I wanted to give you some feedback from a listener who wrote in. Oh. Uh-huh. To, to tell me that uh, they want you to do the sponsor reads. Because when I do them, it's like a, uh, I forget the, his exact words. But it was something like it is a uh, jarring and painful interruption to an otherwise great, uh, great story or great podcast. Wow, jarring and painful. I, interruption. I'm paraphrasing. Don't quote him on that. All right. Uh, so I thought you could do you do the the sponsor read. Yeah, it's for Mac Weldon, who I know you like, and then maybe we won't lose him as a listener if uh, if you take over. <clears throat> okay, so are you going to send me this? No, just wing it. Oh, just wing it? Yeah. Is that going to satisfy Mac Weldon? Yes. Oh, okay. And it will satisfy um, our listener who doesn't want to be jarred and jolted out of his comfort. No, 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 no. Of course not. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> this episode is brought to you by Mac Weldon, which is an underwear and T-shirt and sock company that uh, is pioneering a kind of new internet <laughs> enterprise where these things, which formerly were purchased at drugstores by our uh, by our caretakers, yeah. are now available to us uh, at a click of a button. You can pick your own size and color of these undergarments, which probably always were white before, (laughs) uh, and now are in a multitude of colors to express your individuality and inner self as much as is possible. Although I would prefer there to be more rosy hues and also (laughs) soft heather colors. Oh, 
because I don't like bold colors as much as I like heather heather colors, uh, pastels, because pastels bring out the gray in my eyes. Um, some <laughs> that's, of that's lovely. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, the underwear is also cut in various ways, such as um, traditional briefs, uh, which are, I think, traditional briefs don't look very good but in when if you look at surveys of uh people who are looking at other people in their underwear uh it turns out that <clears throat> a lot of people like to look at other people in traditional underwear why fronts yeah it's what they're called uh but there's also what are they called boxer briefs yeah. and then high Cut boxer briefs, low-cut boxer briefs, um, different shapes. Let's just say different shapes to make you feel more comfortable in your underpants and socks. They have short socks, which I disapprove of, which are socks that are meant to make you look like you're not wearing socks. You don't? You disapprove of those? I feel like if you're going to wear socks, wear socks. If you're not going to wear socks, don't wear socks. Don't wear socks that look like you're not wearing socks. That's oh, those just are cheating. my favorite kind of socks. Well, I know, but it's cheating. It's cheating, and it's also it's just it's another example of of people now not showing you, like trying to hide the um, the support apparatus. Like, just put it out there. You're wearing socks. Wear little short socks, but don't wear Heidi socks. See, Secret I like socks. the I like the Heidi socks because mm. I, it's not that I'm trying to hide the fact that I'm wearing the socks per se. It's as much as I would rather just wear. I would rather not be wearing socks, but I know that I have to because it's Texas and it's the summer. And yeah. if I don't, then I'll have to throw those shoes away in like a week. Yeah, you just have to wear – I mean, there used to be things called ankle socks. And the reason that people don't like ankle socks is that they're dumb looking. But they're not dumb looking because the sock is dumb. They're dumb because the idea is dumb, which is a short sock is dumb. You should wear a sock. You should wear either a sock or no sock. And if you have to throw your shoes away every week, then that's just the price of <laughs> – it's just the price. Anyway, they have those if you if you want them, if you don't mind – if you don't mind going against my doctrine, but of course I don't live in Texas. I live in Washington. So I, you know, this may be a cultural problem, uh, but they also have different other socks that are the right length and they have t-shirts and they also have a magical fabric that is threaded through with microscopic silver, which is a, which protects you not only from, uh, biologicals, but also gives you a sense of imperviousness, mm. a feeling that you are wearing mithril. Ah, yeah. Which is what I think they should be called. I think they should stop even saying that they have silver in them and just start saying that it's full of mithril. Nobody can challenge them. Nobody can say there's no mithril in that because they can say, well, what is mithril, buddy? <laughs> and then the challenger will have to describe mithril, which they cannot do. Really? I mean, I suppose they could try, but you can't prove that there's no mithril in them. Imagine how many of those underwears they would sell if they said that it was made of mithril. Yeah, I think that's, that's how something. I, that's how I feel about them. 
and so anyway, you can go on the internet and look up Mac Weldon. It's spelled like it sounds. And then you will be directed immediately to the webpage where these things are sold and then buy them. And there is a discount code. Yes. That is, that goes in the thing at the end when you're like, when you see that box that says, do you have any discount codes? And you're always like, no, who are the lucky stiffs that get discount codes? Is this some kind of thing that only cousins of the, (laughs) of the managers get (laughs) discount codes? No, in fact, this will be the time that you do have a discount code, and it is road work. Yes, uh, that you put in. That's correct. All, all caps. I just I yeah, guess. I say all caps. Yeah, just guessing. It's not shouting when you're typing it into a promo code box. Road work. Yeah, and you get twenty percent off. Yes, and uh, you should do it. Because Roadwork is uh, uh, is a, a podcast that is trying to make its owners some sort of meager living. Mm-hmm. Although Dan lives in a house, you know, some McMansion somewhere in Texas that's full of scorpions. <laughs> that's a uh, half truth. John just lives in this rambling property where he can't even find <laughs> his stuff that's full of buckets of rocks that have mosquitoes in them. And he's very confused and and a little bit, you know, John lives under the under the uh, mistaken impression, as so many Americans do, that if he made 10% more money than he makes now, all his problems would be solved. Yes. And maybe Dan thinks that too. And so uh, Mac Weldon is one of the supporters of this podcast. And by buying their things, you make them feel like they're doing a smart thing by putting their ads on our show. And you get mithril underwear and everybody wins. It's a really an everybody wins situation. If you're still, if your underwear is still being bought for you by a caretaker, I applaud you because it's kind of actually how I wish I still was. But, <laughs> yeah. if, but you can even direct your caretaker to go to Mac Weldon and buy you your underwear. Uh, so say we all. Well, I love it. And I, I think that was the best, maybe best ever Mac Weldon spot they've ever had. Well, I think <clears throat> I used my, you know, my ad ad reading voice. It was great. Which, <clears throat> well, it's changed because in the old days, your ad reading voice was like, hello, ladies, <laughs> right? Your ad, ad reading voice was like supposed to be pretty smooth, pretty suave, pretty sexy. But these days <clears throat> I'm taking a cue from the airlines where there's always a video at the start of your flight where the CEO of the airline, a, a person who has no experience in front of a camera or with a microphone or working from a script or any experience really at doing anything except robbing America, mm-hmm. the CEO thinks that what we want as captive airline passengers is to listen to them read a script prepared by a publicist that goes something like, hello, and welcome to Delta Airlines. I am the CEO, insert name here. And it's like this stilted and uncomfortable line readings. And the pilots uh, are doing that? No, no, it's this. It's the video that appears oh. in the 
TV screens okay, on the yeah. plane. <clears throat> and you're just like, you know what would be good? You know what would be good in these videos? Uh, are actors. Like, why wouldn't you just hire an actor? Like, if, if you sat down in your plane and Scarlett Johansson came on mm. and said, hey, everybody, here's the deal. Delta Airlines is a good airline. You've chosen to fly it, and and uh, and Delta is grateful for that. We want to make sure that you get a, as many Biscoff cookies as you can eat, and uh, you know, and and here's how you do a seatbelt. Uh, thanks for flying. I'm Scarlett Johansson. You know, they paid me enough money to make this worth my while, but but that's how the world works these days. Anyway, peace out. I would be so thrilled. I would be I would be paying such close attention. And I would not feel like I was being condescended to by a CEO. Right. I would not <clears throat> have to endure this whole like vaguely Maoist parade <laughs> of flight attendants and pilots who are being forced to stand there and smile. Right. You know, like our people are so proud to serve you. And then it's like all these people in uniform who are like, we're so proud. And, you know, and you just feel like there's somebody with a bayonet at the end of a rifle right off screen. Just like, you're proud. Say you're proud. It just feels awful. It's just the whole thing just feels like a, a kind of tone deafness in American corporate culture, which, ugh, I mean, talk about tone deaf, the whole thing, the whole operation. But like right there. Right there is this idea. Ryan Gosling says, hey, thanks for flying Delta. I'm Ryan Gosling. <laughs> you might know me as uh, the actor that uh, that everybody likes. Right. And here I am, and I'm doing this thing now. This is just another acting job. So, you know, you can't judge me. It's just a job. Uh, but I'm awfully charming and pretty, you know, like pretty good at reading scripts. Fly safe, dogs. <laughs> why is this? Why why have they not? Why have they not come up with this? This is like, this is not rocket science. <clears throat> anyway, so I did my Mac Weldon read in the contemporary style of CEO of a podcast, sort of working from a vague memory of having read or listened to somebody else do do this ad once. I think I got pretty close. Yeah, you did great. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. But I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the best one they have ever had. I think it is. You're being flattering. No, I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you got rid of your hot tub. It's and gone. What, what is there in its place? Right now, hot tub dust. But my overall plan, here's the plan. And why get rid of it? Did it not work? No, hot tubs are Hot tubs are for shit. I mean, there there is a certain type of person that's going to get a lot of good use out of a hot tub. And I, in general, I think of hot tubs as being a thing that married couples that like to drink wine after work mm. might get a lot of use out of. You know, they like to hang out with each other. They like to drink wine. They like... They like each other and they want to be in a hot tub with one another and they want to do it all the time. It's like where they go to relax. 
and then there's the there's the sleazy version, which is like the the scammy sex operator who's like, come on, let, why don't you come over to my house and like hang out with me in my hot tub, which is sort of like it's a bait and switch. It's like, oh, no, it's not. I'm not asking you to take a bath with me. I'm saying you're just a person that I kind of want to get to know a little bit better. And why don't you put on a bathing suit at my house and get in this too small, too hot swimming pool with me? So that's the kind of sleazy one where people go, oh, hot tub. It's a little sleazy. It's a little bit like a waterbed. You know, I'm somebody that loves to take a bath. And so it seems like I would be a natural audience for Yeah, I was going to say, because like it, it, it's everything that you like about bathing, which is warm water, the relaxation aspect to it. But it's out in the great outdoors, which I know you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do like the great outdoors. So how, and I, how does this not equal perfection for you? I would love to have a bathtub in the yard. But that's called a hot tub. No, because a hot tub, A, one of the greatest things, if maybe the greatest thing about a bath is that you are alone in it. You could you be alone not, in a hot tub. Well, you could, but it's an awful lot of stuff to do just to sit alone in a tub. You can occasionally invite people into your bathtub, but it is not the, uh, it's not what you expect every time you go, right? Nobody's going to come over and say, Hey, can I get in your bathtub with you? Whereas people will do that with a hot tub. Second, the second best thing about a bath, maybe it's like right in the running with the first thing for best thing about a bath is that at the end of the bath, you pull the plug and the water goes away and you don't think about it. Right. Down into a pit again. It goes out into see, the I sand. Think this is just, this is something that you, you want to see whatever it is. You've used something. Mm-hmm. You want to see it gone. You want to see it going down and away. Down and away, Dan. Yeah. It's a natural human impulse. Down and away. It's why our toilets work the way they do. Right. Down and away, off the cliff, into the void. But this makes sense why you've got a non-functional swimming pool and now got rid of the hot tub because the water well, wh- stays in there. What I've always wanted and what I, I don't know why I haven't done because it seems like it would be an easy thing. I want to get a plumber here and I want the bathtub drain and the sink drains hooked up to a system where, you know, there's there's like black water out, which is toilet water. But then there's this gray water out, which is sink water, tub water. And there are different kinds of, I think within a plumbing context, they're treated differently. There are different kinds of water out. I would like my bathtub to have a valve, a, uh, you know, like a Y valve. And if I have just had a, a nice bath and I've used some organic biodegradable soap, I would like to be able to, to switch this over and have the bath water go out through a different pipe and into the irrigation system for my garden. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why an entire tub of water should go down the drain. It should just go out and 
and go into my garden. Yeah, it sounds doable, though. It doesn't yeah. sound like you're asking for something impossible. No, it's not a bad idea at all. And in fact, I think every one of these houses that's built now with quote-unquote green technology, all of that gray water should either go into some kind of recycling situation or percolate out into the yard or, you know, this is not bad water. It's not dirty. It's just used. And I think over time, if I just sent my bath water out into my garden, little by little, like my entire property would start to become a single organism, <laughs> right? Because all of my DNA would be out there under the roots of the vegetables. <laughs> yeah. It would be like fish eating plastic, except it would be my plants eating me. Right. And then it would just, the whole thing would just develop this kind of like glowing orb around my whole yard where it was like, I could start thinking like a plant and the plants would start thinking like a person. I don't know why I haven't done that. It seems like <clears throat> it's just on the list of like 80 things I need to do around here, including the next thing, which is to get a guy driving one of those big loaders, a, yeah. big, a big backhoe and get in here and to pull that swimming pool down upon itself and crush it up under its under the bulldozer tracks and munch it and munch it and then dump like 15 dump truck loads of crushed gravel and then sand and then topsoil and turn what now is this derelict swimming pool that I've been throwing logs into for 10 years right I think the first thing I'll do is have a big bonfire, but after after the dry season's over, then I'm going to do all this, and then it's going to be this fantastic lawn where I could go play polo or I could have like a competitive croquet tournament or I could build a little yoga studio or whatever I wanted that wouldn't be just this like quarter of an acre of cement hole in the ground that I have now. So that's my, that's my plan for that. I mean, I think all these things are reasonable. They are. I haven't heard of anything. You, I haven't heard you say anything that probably hasn't been done. And there's probably a, a company or a guy who could just do, implement all this. They, they, these are things that have been done. And, and Dan, like everything, in my life, what it comes down to is what's missing is not someone to do it. What's missing is a project manager, a contractor, or a uh, an executive assistant, someone who leads the charge, who takes the plan and turns it into phone calls. This is the I, this is really what it boils down to. If I had a bot. Yeah. That took plans and turned them into phone calls. I would be unstoppable. It's just plans need to turn into phone calls. Yeah. Because you can do almost anything with a phone call. Right? You call somebody and you say, do this. And the person goes, okay. They say, it costs this much money. And then you make another phone call and you say, I talked to person A. They said, this costs this much money. How much does it cost for you to do it? And then you do that four times and then you pick the best one, not the cheapest one, but the one that sounds the best. Right. And then all that requires is that you have money. 
And as you know, like I don't have a ton of money, so I'm not able to do all the things I want to do or even in most cases, any of the things I want to do. But I also try to live as though money isn't real, (laughs) but I also try to do that in a way that doesn't cause me to be bankrupt. Right. And so I don't live like money isn't real, like somebody who just got a credit card for the first time and, and because they joined the U S army and then they bought a, a Dodge challenger. Right. I'm not like that kind of money. Isn't real person. I'm one of those money. Isn't real people who says, look, money's not real. So don't get freaked out about it. Don't sit around sweating it and panicking about it. Just don't buy anything that you don't have the money to buy, but also like, Keep working on figuring out ways to get money, but then don't get weirded out about it. Don't sit around thinking like, oh, I can't spend this money because money, 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 money. Right. It's a very complicated philosophy. When you, when you get some money, do you generally find you, you will spend it immediately or you no. already have something set aside to spend on? Or do you say, no, I'm, this is what I, I'm going to hold on to this until I need it? Money goes into the to a different kind of hole, Dan, which is the money <laughs> hole. When I get money, I, I put it in the money hole, which is a secret hole. It's not like a bank hole. account. It's like an actual, like you, you take the cash out and you have it like in, like buried somewhere. It's all in Saudi Arabian mm. uh, reals. Right. No, it's... Uh, like, are you, I'm just curious if you're burying it or if it's in a, you know, financial institution of some kind. No, it's in a financial institution. Okay. It's, it's, it's crazy to, the FDIC makes it crazy to keep your money anywhere in a, uh, but in a bank, unless you have so much of it. But no, like I, like I try to budget things so that I'm always operating under budget. And that's pretty easy to do because you just look at how much you make and you look at how much you spend and then you spend less than you make. And it, it requires that, you know, both of those things, Mm -hmm. how much you make and how much you spend. Um, and it also requires that you have no unexpected either expenditures or, uh, income drops. Those things can catch you off guard. But if you've been spending less than you make for long enough, you can even weather some of those storms because you have money in your money hole. And if you are like my dad and when you get money, you spend it immediately, then there's no money to protect you against storms. And I I think the one way that money the one way I treat money where I believe it's real is that it protects you against storms. It's the concept of self-insurance. You have to have insurance to weather against crazy, crazy things. But self-insurance is just the, is just the principle of because money isn't real. It doesn't mean just because you have it, you should spend it. It's this thing that you, that you keep to tide you. And I know that a lot of people struggle 
people struggle, struggle, struggle with money. And it feels very real and it makes them feel awful all the time. And listening to me say this, I'm sure that they are sitting somewhere saying, yeah, easy for you to say, but, and then they have a whole list of reasons why it's easy for me to say and why it's not easy for them to say. But there's a way, there's always a way to make it. You can always make it and you can always make it without trauma even when life's unexpected twists and turns come and throw mm-hmm. you for a loop, you know, they're, they're awful, awful, awful situations that happen to people. And all of a sudden they are completely underwater and, and their money situation seems like bananas and they're going to go bankrupt and they're going to, you know, there are people right now who are living in their cars because they couldn't stay on top of the money wave that they needed to stay on top of. Right. But there are ways to weather those storms too. And there are an awful lot of people that have hit an awful lot of misfortune who aren't living in their cars. And it's, you know, it, it isn't just that, um, the people that aren't living in their cars are the lucky ones and the people that are, are unlucky. There's also, there's also a considerable amount of management that can protect you from misfortune. And, you know, my income is completely random, Dan. There's no way at the beginning of the year to know at all if I'm going to make any money. But I do have a set of skills that's fairly uh, diverse. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the year, I try to employ those skills in different directions in order to make enough money that at the end of the year, I'm not out of money or that I haven't been out of money for half the year, which has happened. You know, it's one of, and one of the things is, you know, the, the, one of the nice things about the American express card is that you have to pay it off every month. It's not a credit card. You don't get to just right load it up. You can use it. You go out you buy stuff, but at the end of the month, you have to pay it off. And that keeps you honest. And I think there's a big part of that, right? You have to keep, you have to keep honest with yourself. So at my house, there's a lot that needs done. And if I need a new trailer hitch and it costs $25 and actually it was $27, but then it was $5 off for some reason yesterday. I don't know why the guy said, you get $5 off. And I said, awesome. And that was the end of the conversation. We didn't, We didn't discuss why, but I am in a financial position where I can go down and get a trailer hitch when I need one, but I am not in a situation where I can hire 15 dump trucks and a, uh, and a backhoe to tear my swimming pool down and turn it into a croquet lawn. Right. Which is why, even though it seems doable, even though I should have a system whereby I, send my bath water out to my garden. None of these things have happened. And I make it sound like that they haven't happened because I, I haven't made the phone call, but really it's because I can't afford it. Well, they're expensive. <laughs> they're expensive. And even if you do them cheaply, they're expensive. And the last thing you want is a cheaply done valve in your wall that, sends your bath water into your basement or into your kitchen worse. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's difficult to give it's give, difficult to give financial advice to an audience that is presumably across the entire spectrum. Oh yeah, of financial uh, liquidity. Yeah, we've got right? we've got people who are mowing lawns for a living, all the way up to you know some of the wealthiest stockbrokers, uh, lawyers, doctors. Some of the wealthiest CEOs. human beings that ever walked the face of the planet yeah. are listening to Roadwork right now, That's and they're true. thinking to themselves, "If I only made ten percent more, I would all my problems." That's would be exactly what, right. Well, let's do our second. You can do our second sponsor for those people who have uh, who would like to support you. We have two sponsors. We have two. We Does were, all of this happen behind the scenes normally, where you and I talk and then you do these things later? Yes, and that's why the person wrote well, what in. To I, what say I'll that do. Okay, I'll, uh, you know, I'll reveal, lift the kimono a little bit. Yeah. Um, I will put in a marker for myself at a natural, as best as I can, a natural lull in the conversation. This is like a beep. You do a little like beep. I, it's not audible. It's, uh, it's just a little marker in the application that I use to do the recording, which is Logic uh, Pro 10. Oh, I didn't know you used Logic. Yeah. So I'll, um, I used to do Pro Tools uh, years ago, and I just I got fed up with having the little iLock, the little USB key, and everything else. And so I switched to Logic Pro, and it's, it's been fine. Yeah. And uh, so I'll drop a little marker, and then, you know, when you kind of naturally pause, or maybe you'll lead into shifting topics or something like that. I and get I'll, it. I'll put a marker there, and then after the show's done... After we hang up, I'll record the spot and I'll say, well, we need to thank our second sponsor. It's whoever, you know, and then I'll, I'll go back to where the marker was and I'll put it in and I'll do the best to make it as seamless as possible. And the reason I do that, as opposed to just doing them in line, typically on this show anyway, is because I don't want to disrupt your, you get into a zone I've noticed and I don't want to there to be any bumps in the road for you. I want you to just, I, these are things I try to shield you as your handler. I try to shield you from this. It's like if we're, if you're backstage at a show and you're like, I need a coffee before I can do the show. I, I'm not going to go upstairs to the break room and realize the coffee machine is broken and then run out to a Starbucks and come back and tell you, well, the coffee machine upstairs was broken. And so I had to go down to the Starbucks. But the first place I went, they didn't have the uh, 2% milk, which you said you needed. So I went, had to go to another. I'm just going to hand you the coffee and say, here you go. Yeah, right. So this is me just handing you the coffee and saying, here you go. I'm doing it behind the scenes. Right. But because we got that feedback from the listener, I want to make damn sure, you know, that he's happy. And right. we don't want to lose him. So you do that. You do the spot. It's Squarespace. Right. So oh, it's Squarespace. Take it. Take it away. Do your thing. Okay. So Squarespace has been helping not just road work, but so, so, so many podcasts uh, around the world uh, <laughs> to be available um in uh the internet and here's how because you need websites we need websites you need websites websites are important 
a good friend of mine once said, you need a website. And I was like, why? And then it turned out he was right. <laughs> because that's where things happen. E-commerce. Right. And blogs. And, uh, and here's the other thing. The man. And now we're talking about the man, the real baddies, mm. the heavies. Yeah. Right? Like Facebook. And Instagram, which is a subsidiary of Facebook, probably. Is that right? Yes, sure. Anyway, Instagram and uh, Apple and Google and Snapchat and Pinterest, which is the worst. God, they always want you to log in. And Tumblr. <laughs> and these all these heavies, they want to offshore your content onto their own platforms. So you think that you are blogging, but in fact, you're just creating content for their platform. And your photo blog isn't a photo blog. It's just another in a billion Instagram accounts. Whereas if you have a website, your own website, then you are the one in control of your destiny. And so that is why Squarespace is amazing because they make it easy for you to do a website. Right. And so we podcasters all need websites, I think. I've never been to one of our websites, but I bet we do. And also, you need to post your content somewhere. Am I right here? Dan, yeah, like do we have our content posted yeah, somewhere? You, yes, we do. Yeah, on Squarespace, which is very, 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 not just generous to podcasters, but also like creating a universe of Squarespace users. We all recognize each other when we see each other in the club. Right. And uh, you're not my supposed friend, to talk about the club and they find out right. after they sign up. That's right. They find out. Uh, my friend Jessica Cowson works at Squarespace and she is like a, she's kind of a big wheel there. I think she does. Um, well, she seems to have a very good time doing events and stuff. So I'm going to guess that she does events there. I once went on a jet ski trip with Jessica in like Coco key in the Bahamas or something, an area that's right now getting swept out to sea by a giant hurricane. Anyway, so Squarespace is where you should put your website. And not only should you put your website there, they'll make it super easy to put your website there. And also, you should build a website there even if you don't have one now because I bet you're pouring your hard-earned content onto some platform that is being controlled by a, a monolithic megacorp based somewhere south of San Francisco, and they don't care about you. They just plain don't care about you. They don't want you to succeed. They don't want your blog to be good or your <laughs> photos to be nice. They just want you to be part of their octopus feeding tank. Wow. So get out there, and let's go back to a internet where we all had our own websites. And that internet could and should be called Squarespace net. Nice. Because they are the ones that are making it the easiest to do this. 
and they support podcasts. Very true. Do you want to give them a promo code to use? Oh my goodness. You can get a promo code apparently where the cost of doing your website there will be offset and uh, and it will be even cheaper and easier. 10, 10% and it will, off. It will give you that feeling of that feeling of like outsmarting the the dopes outsmarting the the uh, I mean basically you're outsmarting the cops because Google is the new cops. Well, Facebook is the new cops. Yeah. Uh, so stop putting your stuff on the bad internet. Start putting it on the good internet. Here's your promo code. Road work. Yes, road work. Yay! This is this works. You great. got it. Ten percent off your first purchase. Mm-hmm. Uh, the code promo code is is uh, road work. One word. Roadwork. All caps. All caps. Road work. Ten percent off. And uh, you know, and like thank them and be grateful for them yes. because they're they are still. You're not going to do your e-commerce on Facebook. Facebook's going to make that real hard for you. They're going to try and swallow you up. <laughs> you can do your e- e-commerce on Squarespace, and all the commerce goes directly to you. That's right. Squarespace is just the E. <laughs> so, thank you for doing that. I think we might have just kept that listener. Do you feel do you feel like that was a I felt like that was a little bit No, I was a good one. Well, you're a right. natural. All right. We'll see. We'll see about this long term. So what this uh what's your so what's your your plan now for the space? I remember when as you were describing tearing up that hot tub. I remember being about a three, three and a half year old boy, and I don't have very memory, memory. I don't have very many memories from that time period. Uh, but I do remember that we used to have a shed in our backyard where I guess they kept lawn equipment and things like that. And at one point, they decided to get rid of it. And what was left was a you know, probably 10 by 10 foot or eight by eight foot uh, square where no grass was. And I used to love, and I loved that. I thought it was the coolest thing because you had this whole lawn full of grass and then just this one square that in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, you could just, you didn't have to do sod like we did here. And in Florida, you just throw some seeds down and the seeds would become the grass in a very short period of time. And I feel like that's what you've got now. You've got like a hot tub sized space in your backyard. And well, you don't, you don't is, know what to put there. There's so much space in my backyard that is, that How I don't know. How many acres do you have? Oh, it's not a question of multiple acres, but it is like, let's say it's less than a half an acre. It's a third of an acre. Let's call it that. But still, that's a lot of that's a lot of property to have in the middle of the city and it's only possible because this was for until super recently. And I mean, probably within the last six months, this was considered not a part of the city that was like treasured. 
by the city, by the people of the city of Seattle. Sure. Um, But now that Seattle is very expensive, you know, it's so wild to watch gentrification happen. When I lived in Washington, D.C. in 1990, uh, up on Capitol Hill, um, to the east of the Capitol building, in between the Capitol and the river, um, was this area around Lincoln Park, which was undergoing gentrification at the time. And on the other side of the river is Anacostia, which is you know kind of the Oakland of Washington, D.C. But this side of the river was this neighborhood that was full of elegant row houses. And if you walked the three or four blocks immediately to the east of the Capitol, all of the row houses were beautiful and they had been completely restored and they were occupied by, by high mucky mucks in the federal government. And they were the type of row houses that had like dramatic lighting under their plants. You know, you know, you're in a nice neighborhood when the plants all have their own lighting and that's what these places were. And then if you got five or six, or seven or eight blocks further toward Lincoln Park, you started to get those blocks where there were several nice row houses. There were a few that had scaffolding on them. Mm-hmm. And then there were several that had not been fixed up. And then if you went five or six further blocks, you would get to those blocks where there were a few that had scaffolding on them several that were not fixed up and maybe one or two that were abandoned, boarded up. And then on the other side of Lincoln park, you found these streets where it was the streets are identical, right? The, the row houses are identically beautiful, but now you're on a street where none of them are fixed up. Some of them are abandoned. One of them caught on fire. Um, you know, they have aluminum siding now, you know, there it's it has become a, or it's rather not become, but it was it was a neighborhood that had long been left in a state where the people living there could not get loans to improve their houses, and they didn't have the money to do it, and you know it was a poor neighborhood, and really close to the capital, you know, like just a really fifteen minute walk away on flat level ground in a nice neighborhood and mm-hmm. watching the gentrification happen there where it really was like so exaggerated because it was just block by block. Like this is a beautiful block. These homes are very expensive. I'm going to walk 10 minutes and this block now is very poor and these homes are very cheap. It was like, it blew my mind at the age of 21 to see it so nakedly. Yeah. In my neighborhood here, there's been, in the 10 years that I've lived here, zero gentrification. Mm. Like when I moved in, in 2007, all the neighbors raised an eyebrow because it was like, uh-oh, what the fuck is this? I did not, I was not like a normal element in the demographic 
sort of distribution of this neighborhood. But then as my neighbors realized that I was not a normal element in any demographic anywhere, they had just, they'd just received an outlier and I didn't, I was not a herald of things to come. I was just one anomalous data point. Everybody, (laughs) everybody relaxed and they were like, Oh, okay, well we just have the one guy here who's out swinging swords in the middle of the street. That's fine. We can deal with that. But now really in the last year, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, what's going on there? What's going on there? Like these houses all are getting fixed up and houses around here haven't really been fixed up. Nobody's fixing up their houses in this neighborhood. It had just not a single one. You never saw a dumpster in front of somebody's house. People were just living in their houses, but now houses are getting fixed up and they're going for sale and they're being bought by people who are, who perceive themselves to be intermediaries who like buy it for X number of dollars and fix it up at varying degrees of quality and then sell it to the next people. And we, none of us here in the neighborhood know who the next people are because most of these houses are in that middle place, right? They're being fixed up as we speak. And the presumption of, of those fixer uppers is that when the, six houses around me that I can think of that are in that process right now go up for sale. Who's going to buy those houses? The presumption is there's an audience for them. There's this, there's a market for these places. Who are those people? We don't know. None of us here know. Are they going to be upwardly mobile young professionals? Are they going to be as is traditional in this neighborhood, sort of people in retirement who are just moving from one place to another. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting to see the house across the street from me is for sale right now. And I went to the guy who was selling it and I said, listen, if you can sell this to a group of, um, stewardesses from Japan airlines who are just looking for a place to like, like a bunkhouse, uh-huh. let me recommend that. <laughs> right. And, they laughed and said, well, there's a guy who's like a former professor who's thinking about making an offer. And I was like, a former professor? I don't know. There's already one of those in this neighborhood. And it's me. We don't need we don't need another somebody like that around here. We need some fun. Are they we need just, some they're action. just going to hold, hold it back until the right person like comes up to, to make an offer? That's what I would hope. Oh. A lot of people just want to sell it and just get out of there as quickly as they can. Well, I think that's I think that's what they're going to try and do. Yeah, but but I feel like they owe me a little bit of they owe me a little bit of love. In fact, their real estate agent came over and said, "Would you mind moving this RV to somewhere where it isn't so prominent while we're showing the house to prospective buyers?" And I said, well, don't you want to give them an accurate picture of what the, what's going on here, who their neighbors are? And the real estate agent said, no. Just like that. No. No, we don't want them to get an accurate picture. We don't want them to know you. We want them to think that this is a 
normal Aww. neighborhood where people aren't wandering around in their bathrobes. But you're not doing that these days. Who knows? Who knows what I'm doing these days? Am I even myself anymore, Dan? Do I sound like me? I still sound like me, right? You sound like you more than ever. Well, that's perfect. Thank you. That's exactly what you're I You're more I, you today than when I met you a few years ago. Oh, that's wonderful. And I didn't, when I met you, it was enough that I thought to myself, this isn't really him. But now I feel like you are him. I am he as you are he as <laughs> you are me as we I are all together. I should have seen that coming. Wah, 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 wah. I feel like this episode would be a real, like a good jumping in point for people. Really? Yeah. We covered right. a lot of ground in this one. Well, let's, uh, let's encourage people to jump into this one. Yeah. Now are in relation to that, are you on Twitter anymore or are you not on it? Because a lot uh, of people respond to the show or comments on the show or things like that on Twitter and they'll, at me and at you in, and I feel bad because like I want to reply and say, John's not going to see this, but I feel like you are looking still. That I am looking that you're still looking on Twitter. You're still, you might not respond on Twitter, but you're still watching it. Like you're just two, three steps removed, but you're still looking. For a long time, I didn't go anywhere close to it. And then I started to go on once a week and just read back at everything that everybody had said, but not really engaging. And then I started going on once a week and reading back and those things where people said something really nice or really clever, I would, I would fave it with a heart. Yeah. And now I'm looking at it every three to five days and doing that. But I don't. And the thing is, like, you know, I used to be like, like I used to be, Dan. I would look at Twitter 60 times a day. You're doing that again? You're back to that point? No, I'm not. Oh. I, I would look at Twitter between six and 60 times, depending on what was happening and depending on what you call, call a time. Like if you spend 20 minutes sitting and scrolling through Twitter, is that one time or, or how many, how many times is that? A lot of times. It felt like a lot of times. And I think part of what's happening is that Instagram where I have been hiding is becoming more and more political. People are, doing a thing that they didn't used to do, which is screenshotting their Twitter and then putting it on Instagram, which is like, Oh God. Okay. I, you know, like you can't tell people that they're using social media wrong, even though I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't screenshot your Twitter arguments and then put them on Instagram, hoping for more faves, but as Instagram becomes a place where I no longer feel like I can hide, it's having a perverse effect of making me feel like, well, maybe I should just go back over to Twitter. It doesn't seem like, you know, in a way, it's funny. When I left Twitter, I felt like, well, that's the death of Twitter. And then realized like, no, Twitter's fine without you. They've, they've, 
They've been puttering right along. Nobody even noticed you were gone. No, we noticed. So, I mean, I still do not 100% trust my ability to be on Twitter and not get into arguments with people. And I don't want to be in specious political arguments with people that I don't admire. Right. Or even people that I do admire. Um, because it not only resolves nothing, but it also just creates a pit in my stomach all day. I do not want to rejoin that, but I would like to, I would like to rejoin a environment where smart people are sharing ideas and I don't a hundred percent know how to make it so that smart people are sharing ideas in my world without getting into specious arguments with each other or people who I don't know or care about, about things that I don't feel like the other party is operating from the same information base as I am. And that's a weird way of, of describing it, but it increasingly feels like it is pointless to argue against, uh, argue with people who don't have the same volumes in their library. Mm, I understand what you mean because you're just like, well, what you just said doesn't make any sense. And they're like, well, you just said doesn't make any sense. And it's like, <laughs> wow, uh, I can't, I just can't do that anymore. And I don't like to read things on Twitter where the person posting it feels so secure mm. in their position but to me, it feels like their position requires that you only know 10% of what I feel like is the important information. And I've, I've realized recently that, and this is true of both sides of the political spectrum, that there, it's not just politics anymore. There, we're living in a world where if someone advances a theory – it's very easy to get people behind you. If you say, I think that the reason that the apples in my yard have worms in them is because global warming. <laughs> you will get as many faves and retweets as you want because there will always be somebody who agrees or who feels like there's no harm in agreeing. And it's why the anti-vaxxers had such a, a long run and created so much havoc because somebody said something. I think that vaccines cause autism and that enough people supported them who didn't know anything that they were able to, create a loud wall of screaming against almost universal agreement on the part of people who do know stuff. And so you say, well, apples have worms in them because of global warming. And someone says, well, no worms naturally appear in apples. If you don't spray for them and spraying for them is hard. You have to do it in the middle of winter when it's cold and you know, it's a process. And then the response to that is, well, you're saying that global warming is fake or 
you're opposed to our global efforts to reduce global warming. No, no, I'm not at all. I'm just saying that this is unrelated to that. This is just apples and worms. It's a whole different, it's not, global warming plays no role. Oh, really? Well, this year it was so hot that the apples all fell to the ground and were mushy before I could even eat them. Yeah, that may be true. That's might be related to global warming, but it has nothing to do with worm, you know, and it's just like, you're just not able to communicate. And the problem is that the person who initially posited this theory now has 10,000 likes or whatever. They feel completely validated. And people that come along later and read it say, oh, well, shit, that guy's got 10,000 likes. I mean, that's that also must be true. And it's impossible to, for me at least, engage even at all. And it, and it feels like it is pervading now. And a lot of it feels really well-meaning on both sides. That's what's so frustrating. You know, a good, a good friend of mine said that at his daughter's school now, they are really, really teaching preschoolers about body autonomy, which means that the child's body is their own. Right. And they can dictate, um, they need to, you know, know their limits and dictate what kind of touch they want. And on the surface of it, and I mean, this is a very difficult thing for me to wade into, right? Because I'm not an expert here either. But on the surface of it, it feels very well-meaning. You want children to grow up not feeling like their uh, bodies are subject to other people's right. hands or authority and so forth. And it's also presented as a female empowerment thing that if we teach our daughters from a young age that they are not, that they can't just be grabbed and yes. manhandled, right. that they grow up feeling empowered. And so a friend of mine is talking about his experience sending his three-year-old, I guess, to this preschool. And he says, you know, it's really – and he says this kind of sheepishly, but he's like, you know, it's really difficult now because in the parking lot of the grocery store, I'm trying to get her into her car seat and she's screaming, no, daddy, bad touch. Oh, my God. And people are looking at me, and I believe in this, so I'm not touching her. I'm trying to get her to agree to go in her car seat, and she's not. And so an hour goes by, and I'm afraid that somebody's going to come over and, you know, like having called the police – and he's not saying this like expressing any doubt at all about this doctrine because this doctrine has been proposed that and, – and incredibly well-meaning, right? We do want to raise a generation of empowered daughters. We do not want them to feel like being manhandled is right. just part of their birthright. And so this has been proposed by somebody and it has been adopted by a lot of people, I've seen this now promoted in a lot of different places. And now apparently it's also 
part of the curriculum of a Montessori school. And I don't know whether my friend is applying this philosophy too completely and maybe the people who are promulgating it say, well, exceptions can be made when your child is in danger or when you need to get them into a car seat at a grocery store. But if you teach a three-year-old to say no bad touch to their father when he's trying to fasten their seatbelt, you reap what you sow, right? You can't can't convince the three-year-old. I mean, you can't even convince the three-year-old to get into the car seat, let alone that there are some times when it's okay to tell daddy bad touch and other times it's not. And nobody wants to weigh in on this because you risk, if you say, wait a minute, you know, the thing about a toddler is that they want to feel safe and that means that the parent is in control you know, like right. no child, no three-year-old wants to be making decisions. They don't know it, but you don't want a three-year-old making decisions about what their father or mother is able to do in terms of picking them up. Because if your three, I mean, your three-year-old already f- wants to be in charge, but if the three-year-old feels like it's in charge, that's terrible. That's a terrible thing to do to a child. You want your parents to feel omnipotent when you're little. But, and there may even be someone listening right now who feels like what I am saying is like dangerous because it is going to raise a generation of disempowered women or something. But in fact, this is a theory that has no, there's no, way you can test this theory, right? We have not watched a generation of children grow up under the doctrine of, of, uh, toddler body autonomy to see if it in fact creates a generation of empowered people, or if it in fact creates a generation of people who feel further estranged from other people. Because from the time that they were very little, they were dictating to grownups what their reality was going to be before they had any capacity for judgment at all. Like that seems to me to be a very destructive idea. Right. To empower toddlers or children of any kind to be making decisions about how their parents interact with them. That is a, that is the inverse of how, uh, decision-making should flow. But this is out there now in the world and it's on Twitter and there are people saying, you know, if you, if your kid is screaming in the mall and you pick them up and carry them outside, um, you are in, you are violating their body autonomy. And it's just like, wow, I cannot argue with it because I will get avalanched. But also I feel like I need to argue with it because it's bad thinking. But I'm not a child psychologist and I'm sure there are child psychologists who are on board with this. And so it feels like I'm I'm pushing against a tide of a culture that is no longer thinking straight. And then 
because I'm pushing against a certain aspect of that tide, I get lumped in with anti-vaxxers or conservatives of some kind, people that are against female empowerment or something. You know what I mean? Like I, it, totally. there's this way that you're just like, well, you know, the, you know who else said that? Milos Axinapolapolapolis <laughs> or whoever that guy is. Um, because it's this strange bedfellows world where if you say, look, I don't think you should be sucker punching people in the, in the streets. Oh, well then you're sympathizing with Nazis. Therefore you are a Nazi, which is that, which is the thing that finally threw me off Twitter, right? Was that whole punch of Nazi business. When believe you me, there's nothing I want more than to punch Nazis. I'll punch them all day. I'm captain fucking America of punching Nazis. I just don't believe in sucker punching. Right. You want you want it to be a a fair fight. Walk right up to him and punch him right in the nose. Punch him from the back of the head. That's just some that's fucking gentlemanly shit. That has nothing to do with ugh. I got so many I got so many replies from fucking bros telling me that I was a Nazi sympathizer. Unbelievable. They don't know you very well. Well, that's not necessary. You know, it's not necessary to know somebody very well. And, and, you know, and there's so much on the right to be, to be critiquing and arguing against that it feels like you can't even argue against something on the left because why are you wasting your time? You should be fighting the real enemy. But, you need to keep your eyes on your own people too. You need to be able, I mean, you know, to be a, to be a leftist critic of the left is very important. You don't want the left. You can't be, but you can't be that. If you criticize anything on the left, then you become very, very quickly. You, you become a member sure. of the right. You're anything. a proxy of the right. Right. Because the right, you know, because it's almost like you're like a, like you're like a, an embedded spy of some kind. Yeah, because as 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 crazily different as the two worlds seem, the lines are blurred more than ever before. You know, the 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 methods of the radicals and the reactionaries are are the same methods. They're just used in different ways. So, I so I look at Twitter and I'm like I want to go back on there because there's so much fun to be had and so much interesting information to share and so much difference you can make in the actual world, but my God, there at any moment I could step into a thing where I'm, where I get 75 angry tweets a day for three days. And that seems like a small matter, but, but what's even smaller is a sensitive guy. You're affected by this kind of thing. Well, and here's a, here's a way, you know, maybe it is a small matter, but it's also easy to just not go there. It's easy to not keep going into the to the dance club where everybody uh, is crazy. You just stop going to that dance club. So I don't know. I I want to be there, Dan. I really do, but I don't. Uh, but I don't feel honestly. I just don't feel safe there, and that is not a thing that you know. That in a way that doesn't sound like me. Because it feels like I normally go lots of places where I don't feel safe. But 
if you go somewhere where you don't feel safe and and that that bad feeling was proved over and over like if you go down an alley and you get punched and then you go down that alley the next day and get punched like you stop going down that alley no matter how brave you are just because you just keep getting punched it's like you know you're you have all the evidence you need I don't know. I feel I I feel bad being disengaged. It's not my natural state. Being disengaged is not who I am. But I also am not somebody that wants to be constantly at war. And also, this is the crucial part, I'm not somebody who can sit idly by pretending that he's not hearing bullshit when he is. So I've been over on Instagram sharing pictures of my cats for the last six months, just like taking a breather. And I don't know how I'm going to get back in the game. 